Father, as we come to your word, we ask just that now, that your will shall be done in our lives and that you will help me to apply this passage sensitively and yet without bottling things. So come and move amongst us and work amongst us now. Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Again, when you preach through a book, you deal with subjects that you wouldn't choose to preach on, and this is one of them. This is a passage that can be and has been misinterpreted. It's been applied in damaging ways over the years, but if we can make sense of it, it's, it's pastorally brilliant. And as we begin, I'm, I'm ever so conscious that um, there'll be people listening either in here or online and you're quite comfortable with me preaching on this passage. And some of you will have started squirming in your seat at the first mention of the word sex. I'm aware that some will be listening online who are single and want to be married. Some people will be single and quite content. Some people will be married and wishing they were single. Some people have got great marriages and, and sex is not an issue and people who don't, and people for, for whom the whole area of, of sex and sexuality is awkward, embarrassing, scary, perhaps even frightening and brings painful memories. And so we got to come to this passage sensitively, and Paul deals with it brilliantly. And so if you stay with us, you'll see that there's grace here and that there's help for every single one of us. I do believe this is a, a passage that helps every single one of us. Let me briefly recap uh, the letter. Uh, the church at Corinth knew, and it's full of first-generation Christians, and they've all brought baggage. Lots of them would have been wealthy, some of them would have been poor, most of them would have been saved out of a culture, or all of them would have been saved out of a culture that was very liberal, very promiscuous. And so Paul sends, spends the first four chapters dealing with pride issues, dealing with ego. And then he moves on to moral issues. Namely, there's a bloke who's in a sexual relationship with his stepmom, and nothing's being done about it. See, the, one of the big problems at Corinth is sexual immorality. Wealthy households that have servants and that have maids, and it, it was commonplace and it was accepted that the men were allowed to sleep with the, the maids or the, the servants. You had prostitution, you even had temple prostitutes. It was a very morally lacks society and most of the people in the church were unfazed by that we looked at that the other week but there were some in the church that it really bothered and it seems that they'd written to Paul to say Paul you need to intervene here Paul says in verse 1 concerning the things you wrote to me it is good for a man not to touch a woman so what did they, what did they write to Paul it seems that the, the, the thoughts or the response of some of the church in Corinth was that sexual immorality is bad. Therefore, let's ban sex. History and the church swing between extremes, don't they? Doctrines get abused and the response is we go too far the opposite way. If you fall off a bike because you've leaned over too far one way, the temptation is to lean too far the other way. And what we need is balance and, and Paul brings balance. How do you counter the wrong use of sex? Well, we don't demonise it, we, we put it in its proper context. 
And so we're going to look at chapter 7 in, in two parts. We won't get all the answers today. But today we're going to look at three things. Sex, marriage, and singleness. And it should pretty much cover us all. How should Christians think about sex in a, in a liberal and a promiscuous culture like ours? Because it's everywhere, isn't it? We can't escape it. Our kids, I was thinking, how can I preach this when there's going to be kids there? But, but our kids are already exposed to this. Our kids know more than we realise. They're exposed to it in school every single day. It's drip-fed to them. And if we don't show them a proper, healthy view of sexuality and marriage and, and, and sex, then, then the world's already showing them it. So how should we respond uh, as Christians? Firstly, what's, what's Paul's first response to the Corinthian concern about sexual immoral immorality? Verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Remember this, we're a male-dominated society today, you could say as well. It's good for a woman not to touch a man. What's Paul saying? Is Paul conceding to those who are saying, let's ban sex because we're Christians? Or is he saying, stay away from women? No, he's using a phrase, he's using the phrase, do not touch. It, it, could, it, was, it meant a variety of things. We might say, if we were translating that to our kind of language, we'd say it's good for a man not to sleep around. Now, when a man sleeps around, he's not sleeping, is he? But that's how we describe it. So Paul says it's not good for it's good for a man not to touch a woman. It's good for a man not to sleep around. It's good for a man not to be sexually promiscuous. Our culture is enshrined in the idea, isn't it, that that having sex, several sexual partners is healthy. You have sex with someone and then then you get to know them. You know you got these programs, Love Island, and Too Hot to Handle, and Naked Attraction, and the aim of the shows is simply to get people into bed together who don't know each other. I was looking in the week. In the UK, the average amount of sexual partners a man has is 12, and the average for a woman's 8. 2% of people have over 90 partners through their life, and only four, less than 14 only have one. Christians are regarded at best as quaint or prudish. If ever I tell people that me and Liz didn't have sex until we got married, they either laugh or they think that's really quaint. The idea is that the Christian view of sex is prudish. But that shouldn't be the reality. As Christians, we should have a high view of sex and sexuality. It's the world that's got a low view of it. And I know there's loads and loads of applications to it, so bear with me. You can't read something like the Song of Solomon and say that Christians are prudish in the view of sex. So please don't think I'm being rude when I say this, but, but Christians should have the very best experience of sex because sex was designed by God to be a uniting of body and spirit. And when people sleep around, they only get body. When people sleep with someone, you, you, you bond intimately with them. That's one of the reasons there's a lot of mental problems attached to people who've had lots of sexual partners. Because you're forming a bond with someone that's, that's meant to be intimate, that's meant to unite your souls, that's meant to be permanent. And then you rip it away and you, and you form that same bond with another person and another person. See, God designed sex to be in an ongoing relationship where you grow in trust and you grow in intimacy and it builds you up. So what does Paul say about sex itself? First of all, he says, don't use people for sex. 
Don't sleep around. Don't be promiscuous. And then he goes on to talk about marriage. Verse 2 to 6. Don't misinterpret what Paul's saying in verse 2. Paul's not saying don't have sex, but if you really, really need to, as a last resort, get married. Some people have done that. Paul's saying if you want to enjoy sexual relationships properly, do it within a marriage. He's ever so clear, isn't he? Let each man have his own wife and each wife her own husband. The only place for a sexual relationship is within a marriage of one man and one woman. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that. The rest of the Bible is mega clear on it. Any sexual activity outside of a man and a woman in marriage is wrong and damaging. So if you want to follow Paul's argument, if you want to enjoy God's gift of sex, then step one, get married. And step two, he says, is give yourself to one another. And that's where it gets awkward, isn't it? From verse 3 to verse 6, Paul talks about four ways that we're to give ourselves in marriage. In fact, this isn't just about marriage and sexual relationships. These principles should be at play in all of our, all aspects of Christianity. When you become a Christian, you give up autonomy, don't you? My life's no longer just about Ben. My life's about Jesus and his church. And that gospel principle spills over into our marriage. When we get married, we give up autonomy. We do it financially, don't we? My money is no longer my money, it's our money. So if you're married, get a joint bank account. Husbands, don't be, if, if, you, if, husbands, if you deal with the housekeeping, don't be tight. Wives, the same applies to you. Mum. You need to up my dad's pocket money. You lose autonomy over your time, don't you? Over your ambitions. And Paul's saying you even lose autonomy as a Christian over your own body. Your body becomes your husband's or your wife's. So how are we to give ourselves to each other in marriage? Well, firstly, Paul says we do it exclusively. Let each man and each woman have their own husband or wife forsaking all others exclusively means husbands and wives we only look to one another for sexual fulfillment we don't look to images we don't look to the internet we don't dwell on thoughts of other people forsaking all others we focus all our attention and our desire on our husband and our, or our wife we don't compare we have a joke in our house it's, it's not a joke but it's a joke I say to Liz, Liz, you are my standard of beauty. Now, what does that mean? Well, some people say, I like blondes, I like brunettes, I like sporty types. I make it my priority to like curly-haired, 42-year-old women who are a little bit cocky. Because I want to make whatever stage Liz is at the stage that I desire. What should Gary's standard of beauty be? 65-year-old talkative brummies. What should June's standard of beauty be? 82-year-old blokes with a ball patch and little legs. And we have to work at that, don't we? Because it's not what the magazines present and the billboards present and the adverts present. And it's not just, I'm going to be faithful, it's this. And I, I, I'm joking, I'm ever so serious on this. It's, I will concentrate my desires on my husband or wife. I'm going to work to fancy them, not other people. 
We give ourselves exclusively. I'm going to put number two and number three together. We give ourselves dutifully and regularly. Or as the authorised version puts it, with due benevolence. We've got to be ever so careful with verse three and four because they've been mauled over the years. Let me read them to you. It says, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. This is the bit that I've put in my notes. Duh, duh, duh. It's our duty to give ourselves to one another sexually in marriage. Unless for very specific temporary reasons. It's a duty. Now duty seems a strange way to put it, doesn't it? Some people might think, well, it's not a duty for me. But some people might think of it more as a, of a duty than, than others. For some people it might genuinely be a problem. For some people, intimacy is easy. And for other, others, it creates huge problems. Now, it's still our duty to give ourselves to one another. But it's not just as simple as that, is it? The gospel principle is that we're not our own. It's a principle that covers the whole of Christian life. My, so my sexual life isn't just about me and my gratification. Now, there might be people hearing this and rubbing their hands up. Please don't go home today and remind your husband or wife of their duty. It won't bring romance. But on a serious note, this, this absolutely doesn't mean that people can take what they want. People's partners' bodies isn't theirs on demand or against will or by force ever. You should never bully or, or guilt people into intimacy. Imagine that I imagine the men hearing Paul's words at the beginning of verse 4 and they're rubbing their hands. But what Paul says in the second half of the verse is it's revolutionary. He says the husband doesn't have authority over his own body either, the wife does. Wives had no authority in first century Corinth. You see, the Bible's teaching on sexuality is liberating, it's about mutual submission. And this kind of mutual submission, it builds a marriage. As we said, it's our regular duty. It's easy to be frivolous, isn't it? We, we're all different. Some people have a high desire and drive for intimacy and some just don't. And for those people that don't, we've got to be sensitive. It can be complex. But the Bible says, give yourselves. Don't just put up that wall. And again, it's not just sexual relationships is it we don't always feel like coming to church we don't always feel like giving ourselves to serving but we realize well this is a duty and mostly it's a joyful duty but it is a duty and it's a regular duty just as a warning for that regular doesn't mean on tap there's a bus every 15 minutes on Beak Avenue but just because I've got a bus pass I don't have to catch every bus be realistic and be understanding in marriages be patient because love is patient and love is kind and love is gentle. This is really personal, isn't it? I feel mega awkward preaching it. And as I'm preparing, I think, I can't say that bit 
But if I'm going to be faithful to this passage, I've got to. And if you're squirming in your seat listening, spare a thought for me because I'm preaching it in front of my mum and dad. So why is it so important in marriage to come together regularly? Well, Paul says that we don't give in to temptation. And again, that's not an excuse. A man or a woman committing adultery mustn't ever use the excuse, well, things aren't right at home. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is teaching us marriage is precious and sexual intimacy maintains and strengthens that bond. Because it's a spiritual thing. It protects a marriage. Paul's teaching the best defense against the wrong use of sex is the right use of sex in a marriage and plenty. But then he tempers things in verse 6. He says this is a concession, not a command. Paul's saying, look, this is not a deal breaker. Paul recognized it's not that simple. Some people have trauma related to intimacy. Some people will always struggle. Some people, it's a physical impossibility. And so sexual in intimacy in marriage is, is to be, it's, it's about understanding and gentleness. And there might be reasons why things are difficult. But we should always, always work at them. But Paul says, this is a concession. It's best advice. I'm not demanding this. And maybe you're relieved to hear that. You say, oh, well, it's not a command. It's just a concession. I'd only respond by saying, yeah, but Paul is an apostle. Listen to him. But he's saying this, this is a concession. Sexual intimacy is not a deal breaker. It's not an excuse for selfishness. But it's not an excuse for brutishness. See, Paul's in encouraging a healthy sex life, but he's not commanding it. And I think that's helpful because it reminds us that the Bible is actually very, very positive about sex, but we mustn't make an idol of it. The world's made an idol of sex. This kind of intimacy doesn't make or break a marriage. At this point, I'd normally offer you some application. So I'm thinking, where do I begin? I want to be as practical as possible. Here's a couple who love each other deeply, but struggle intimately maybe one's got stronger or different desires to the other and it causes tension be gently honest with one another ever so awkward it's difficult it's awkward it's embarrassing sit down and talk ask what each other expects ask what each other frustrates talk about things that, that put you off See, the fact that our, that our body is not our own means that if I make sexual intimacy all about me and what I want, I'm not going to get the most from it. It's about seeking to make the other person comfortable and building up trust. And so we've got to be honest with one another. We've got to talk to one another. We've got to be sensitive and, and gentle. And maybe that means for, for the nervous person to, to, to bite the bullet and talk and for the person who's not quite as nervous to to just be a bit gentler. Please don't laugh at this, but maybe if you feel you can't talk about this with your husband or wife, could you write a note about it? And could the other one read it and reflect on it and reply to each other and then burn them before anyone else finds them? Could you pray about it together? God is interested in every aspect of our life, including sexual intimacy, and he can help. Be very, very careful on this one, but is there another mature Christian of, of the same sex that you could discuss it with? Maybe that mortifies you, but maybe, maybe there is. And you could, you could ask for advice or help. 
Again, being practical, maybe for men, let me say this. Look after yourselves. Brush your teeth, take a regular shower, get your hair cut and try and be attractive. Because you, you look at some blokes, more blokes than women, but you look at some blokes, you, you can understand why there's no romance in the marriage. They dress and act like Jim Royal. We, we've got to make the effort for one another. Some people genuinely give up making effort when they get married. It shouldn't. We should give ourselves to one another. He said, what, what one food is almost guaranteed that if you eat it, you let yourself go? Wedding cake. It's not to be like that. After we get married, we're still to, 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 to seek to be attractive for one another. To make an effort. Finally, and I'm glad we got to this, singleness, verse 7. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. This is what Paul's saying. I wish you were all like me. What does that mean? Does it mean Paul had no sex drive? Paul, had, Paul was single? Paul was content? Well, Paul's saying, I'm single. And I'm happy. Paul's saying, I'm single and, and singleness is also good. If you're single and you're content, Brilliant. We can forget, can't we, in the, in the face of talking about marriage and sexuality and sex, that a, a single celibate life can be a good thing. Celibacy is a good thing, just not in marriage. Paul says it's a gift, not everyone can cope with it. Some people are single through choice, some people aren't. The fact that it's a gift means that singleness can't be a bad thing. As Christians, marriage is amazing, but it's clearly not wrong to be single. It's clearly not wrong to live your whole life single. Jesus was single all his life. And I don't think it was just because he had a mission or just because he had to stay poor. He was just single. The Apostle Paul was single. We don't know if he was widowed or not, but he was single and he was happy. He goes on to talk about widows. He says, look, it's good if you don't remarry, but it's not wrong if you do, as long as it's a Christian. When I was reading this week, I read a great line that went something like this. And I think this would really help me. It said, the world, the world can be obsessed with sex, but the church can be obsessed with marriage. Now, is there somebody single in the church? Oh, we've got to get them married off. Marriage is good, but it's not for everyone. Sometimes the problem is people realise that when they're married. And next time we'll see how Paul makes this, the point that single people, listen, single people don't have to worry about responsibilities at home. Single people don't have to worry about husbands and wives and kids. They, they actually have a lot more freedom and a lot more time to, to serve. And I wonder, I, I know actually that, that often in churches, single people, not deliberately perhaps, but can be marginalised. I've been guilty of this, but in, in it condescending, oh, we must get them married off. Do we say, well, a leader must be married? Well, no, it's, it's good practice, but the point is if they are married, they're faithful, not that they have to be married. I'm, I'm ever so conscious, because we talk about church, that we talk about be, wanting to be a family church. And I know what I mean by that. We want to be like a big family, but, but can it come across, can it actually be sometimes that churches are more focused on getting families in than thinking about people as individuals? How can we help with that? 
How can we take a single person in the church under our wings without being condescending? I'd like this. If you're single, talk to me about what's helpful and not in, in church. Because I don't know. And so Paul's point is, look, marriage is great. Sexual in- intimacy is crucial. But we mustn't obsess about it. We mustn't obsess about marriage. So we've spoken for quite a while about sex and about marriage and about singleness. And we've talked about a lot of ideal things, haven't we? In an ideal marriage, in an ideal world. And there is another part to this sermon. It wraps up a lot of the unanswered next time. But, but what if? What if my marriage isn't good? What if I have had a lot of sexual partners? What if I have given in to temptation? The Bible's black and white, isn't it? The Bible's very clear. But I think it is right to say sin makes things grey sometimes. And Paul deals with some of the grey areas next week. Sometimes what's ideal is no longer possible. And so we look to what's best. And we have to remember this, that God's a God of grace. And I think particularly when it comes to sexuality. God's a God who can redeem sexuality. He can redeem marriages. He can redeem people. He can sustain singleness. And he can provide spouses. But what's been on my mind particularly this week as I've been preparing this is what if I've already messed up? What if I've messed up my marriage? What if I've messed up my dating years? How does all this come across if sexuality is a specific area either of past or present sin? What if, what if you've got huge past or present regrets? What of all this purity stuff? This purity has already gone down the pan for me. Is it, is it too late? I want to ask you a question. I want to ask it carefully. We've got a body and a soul, haven't we? What's most important? Both important. What's most important, would you say? Your soul, because you don't cease to exist without a body, but you can't exist without your soul. Your soul is the real you. Your soul's eternal, your body's temporary. Now, why do I say all that? Let's say that someone slept with 15 people. Bodily, can that person become a virgin? No. Physically can't happen. But if you come to Christ, you can legitimately say, I am a virgin. You can legitimately say, I am completely sexually pure in the way that really matters in here. When you come to Jesus, he he resets and he forgives and he cleans you up and he makes you a new creation. And that includes sexuality. He makes you pure. Maybe you didn't make it as a couple as far as marriage. If you bring it to Christ, it's dealt with and it's gone and you're pure. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been purified. That's not just an idea, it's a spiritual reality and the spiritual reality is greater than the physical one. It underpins the whole gospel, doesn't it? God makes pure things that have been impure. In every way that matters, when you come to Jesus, you are made completely clean. 
And so we don't turn people away because of the sexual past. And we don't say, well, I'm only marrying a virgin. The gospel is that Jesus redeems people. Jesus redeems sexuality. Jesus redeems marriages. Jesus gives new desires. Jesus gives desires to people who don't have them. Jesus gives restraint to people who need it. We mustn't hide our sex lives from Jesus because he wants to redeem us. We can't shock him. We upset him far more by not bringing our problems to him than by laying them at his feet. And I want to close with a, a true story. that I've, I've told it before, but I, for me it, it, it's so powerful and it sums everything up. Before he were married or before he was a pastor, while he were at university, a, a minister witnessed for quite a long time to a lady who had a checkered history. She was a single mum. She'd been promiscuous in her teenage years. And now she was studying at university. And eventually he got to agree to come to a church meeting. She got a babysitter and he, him and his friends took her to church. And the preacher stood up and he preached about purity and sexuality. And there was nothing wrong technically with what he said. But then he, he wanted to close dramatically. Um, and you probably heard this illustration. He took, a, he took a rose. He took a fresh rose. And he sniffed it. And he talked about how beautiful it was. And then he passed this, ro this rose around the first few rows. And he, he said to people, touch it, smell it, feel it. Touch it, smell it, feel it. And he went around about 100 people. And then he asked for it back. And when he, when he got it back, it was battered and it was curled up. And the stem's sagging and some of the petals have dropped off. And the preacher holds it up and he says, who wants this now? And his message was clear that if we misuse sex, we spoil ourselves. And who'd want us now? Staying by sin. Don't spoil yourself, stay pure or nobody will want you. And then he closed the meeting. And the man who tells the story says, I was furious. The girl was mega disillusioned. Because she knew that she was that broken rose that had been passed around. And what hope is there for her? Nobody will want her now. And she went home with her worst fears confirmed. She'd sinned sexually and there were, there, there were nothing for her. That well-intentioned preacher had preached the opposite of the gospel. He'd preached an anti-gospel. You know what the preacher should have said? Sin does damage, sin does leave a mark but Jesus will have the rose and Jesus will make the rose new because Jesus doesn't break bruised reeds Jesus doesn't snuff out smouldering wicks Jesus is the friend of sinners Jesus cleans and restores and turns sinners round not righteous people who will have me when I've fallen and I've sinned sexually? Who will have me when my life feels dirty and unclean because of sex or some other sin? Who, who will have me when I've failed? Where can I go? I'm on my third marriage now and, I, I've, and, and I'm, I'm coming to Jesus. Who will have me? Well, Jesus will have you. And if you confess your sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all, not some, all unrighteousness. See, the gospel teaches us how to give ourselves, but it also teaches how God can deal with our sin. And so sex is good, but it's not ultimate. Sexual immorality is bad, but it doesn't have to be terminal. 
And I want us to know this this morning, that Jesus loves to redeem sexuality. Jesus loves to redeem marriages. Jesus loves to redeem affections. Jesus makes us clean, whatever we bring to him. We're going to sing about God's wonderful grace that gives us the time to change, washes away the stains that once covered me. Let's stand and sing together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wonderful love that held in the face of death, breathed in its final breath forgiveness for me. Wonderful love whose power can break every chain, giving us life again setting us free and all that I have I lay at the feet of the wonderful saviour who loves me Amen <laughs> 